Comcast Business gives you the bandwidth you need to power all your devices. Get started with 200 megabit internet and voice for $99.99 per month. And for a limited time, we'll upgrade your speed to 300 megabits for no additional cost for the first year with a three-year agreement. Call 1-800-501-6000 today. Comcast Business, beyond fast. Offering 3120 restrictions apply not available in all areas. New business customers only limited to Comcast Business Internet, 200 megabits per second and one voice mobility line. Regular rates apply after first 12 months. Three-year agreement required early termination fee applies. Equipment taxes and fees extra subject to change. Monthly service charge increases by $10 without paperless billing and auto pay. This podcast is part of the BombPod Media Network. In one area, a man who saw the flames coming toward him cut his throat rather than be burned to death. He was rescued before the fire reached him, but he soon died of his injuries. In another section, very near to where the fire started, rescuers had nearly succeeded in freeing a woman where the fire swept through. She had survived the collapse, only to be consumed by the fire. As the fire spread, rescue volunteers, firemen, friends, and family were forced back by the extreme heat. Fire crews poured a steady stream of water on the burning section, seeking to halt the spread of flames while rescues continued on the other side. But it was a losing battle. The fire soon spread across the entire ruin and the terrified screams of those business gives you the bandwidth you need to power all your devices. Get started with 200 megabit internet and voice for $99.99 per month. And for a limited time, we'll upgrade your speed to 300 megabits for no additional cost for the first year with a three-year agreement. Call 1-800-501-6000 today. Comcast Business. Beyond fast. Offering 3120 restrictions apply not available in all areas. New business customers only limited to Comcast Business Internet, 200 megabits per second and one voice mobility line. Regular rates apply after first 12 months. Three-year agreement required. Early termination fee applies. Equipment taxes and fees extra subject to change. Monthly service charge increases by $10 without paperless billing and auto pay. Still trapped inside, were quickly silenced, with only the sounds of the fire remaining. Fourteen people were known to have burned to death in the sight of their friends and families. I'm Darren Marlar. And this is Weird Darkness. Welcome to Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, unsolved, and unexplained. This episode of Weird Darkness is sponsored by Horror Pack and buy food for the poor. I'll tell you more about them later in the show, and you can find both right now at WeirdDarkness.com. Coming up in this episode… The Ghost of a Man in Grey Haunts a London Theater The Boogeyman – Where Did He Come From? And Is He Based on a Real Person? A disaster that took place at the Pemberton Mill on January 10, 1860. A terrible disaster that resulted in an impossibly small loss of life, but directly followed by a second disaster that left a community and a nation stunned. Plus, I'll tell you how you can receive a free audiobook that I have narrated simply by leaving an iTunes review. Bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. The Drury Lane Theatre in London is possibly the most haunted theatre in the UK. The most famous ghost is the one called the Man in Grey. He appears in full costume, wearing a tri-cornered hat, a powdered wig, and a long grey cloak with the hilt of a sword protruding from it. He is said to be the ghost of a man whose skeletal remains were found in 1848. A knife had penetrated his long gray cloak and was still embedded in his ribcage. He always appears during the daytime to actors when they are rehearsing. He is thought to be a recordings ghost, 
as he is always seen in the same place, walking quietly in the same direction. His ghostly visitations are thought to be lucky, but the plays performed after his appearance always do well at the box office. During renovation work at the theater in the late 1970s, builders found a buried skeleton clad in the remains of a gray riding coat and a knife sticking out of its ribs. It is believed this may be the remains of the young man, for whom a body was never located. Another ghost reported at the theater described as tall, thin, and ugly is thought to be the ghost of a grumpy actor named Charles Macklin. In 1735, Charles killed his fellow actor Thomas Hallam in an argument over a wig. He thrust his cane through Hallam's left eye into his brain. Macklin has often been seen backstage, wandering the corridor where the murder was committed. The ghost of comedian Joe McGraldy, who gave his farewell performance at Drury Lane, is a rather helpful apparition that is often felt rather than seen. He is said to guide nervous actors gently about the stage. In 1948, a young American actress named Betty Jo Jones was performing badly during a run of Oklahoma. Then, as she describes it, she felt invisible hands guiding her into a different position on the stage. They continued to guide her around the stage during the rest of the performance. Her performance was later described as flawless. Also seen on stage were the ghosts of King Charles II and a crowd of his attendants. Another young actress named Doreen Duke felt the same invisible hands while trying out for a part in The King and I. She got the part, hands down. She believed that Joe Grimaldi's ghost was helping her here. The comedian Stanley Lupino was in his dressing room applying his makeup when, looking in the mirror, along with his own reflection, he saw another face looking back at him. It was the face of Dan Leno, another comedian who had died recently. Lupino was told that he was using Leno's favorite dressing room. A woman in the audience saw what was probably a ghost watching the play that was being performed. She described this apparition as a man wearing old-fashioned clothes sitting at the end of the row where I was sitting. When the lights went up, the man was gone. Later, whilst perusing a book on the history of the theater, she saw a picture of Charles Keene, a 19th century actor. She instantly recognized him as the ghost that she had seen earlier. Considering all these reports of hauntings, you could say that the Drury Lane Theater is where actors, both past and present, take center stage. No exploration into the world of urban legends would be complete without a look at the one that started them all, the Boogeyman. He exists everywhere and nowhere. He's under the bed, hiding in the closet or waiting just outside the window for parents to leave the room so he can feast on their fat, juicy children. The Boogeyman legend is as old as time. In every corner of the globe and in nearly every culture, there is some version of the boogeyman. He is eternal. He is that thing in the darkness that we dare not speak of. He is your worst nightmare come to life. It is nearly impossible to say for sure when and where the boogeyman originated. He was surely conjured up as a tool to get children to mind their parents or else the boogeyman would get them. Many a parent has used this legend when all else fails. Don't stay out past your curfew or the boogeyman will be waiting for you, 
they will say. Or, do as I say or I'll sick the boogeyman on you. So who is the boogeyman? He is whatever scares you the most. If you're frightened of demons, that's who he is for you. If bears terrify you, he will come to you in the form of a bear. The worst thing your mind can conjure is exactly how he will appear to you. Sometimes the boogeyman is just a dark shape passing through a room. At other times, he is eyes that stare out from a crack in a closet door. Every kid knows that the boogeyman can be anywhere. That is why you have to keep the covers pulled up around your neck, and whatever you do, don't let your legs dangle off the side of the bed. That's just asking for the boogeyman to drag you off to some place far away where no one will hear your screams. As scary as all of the boogeyman stories are, they are just fantasy, at least up to a point. There have certainly been many cases over the years of real-life boogeymen who have done things more terrifying than any make-believe monster ever could. One of those monsters was a man named Tommy Lynn Sells. Sells was executed by the state of Texas in 2014 for the brutal murder of 13-year-old Kayleen Harris. He was every parent's worst nightmare, a devil in human form who preyed upon the most innocent of victims. Sells was thought to have been responsible for the murders of at least 22 men, women, and children. It wasn't until the attack on young Kayleen and her friend Crystal Surlis that Sells' reign of terror finally ended. The killer had been an acquaintance of Kayleen's parents. When they met him at a community church event, he was down on his luck, and, being good people, they tried to help him in any way they could. They couldn't know that their kindness would be repaid with more heartache than they imagined possible. It was on New Year's Eve, 1999, that the family saw what the real Tommy Lynn Sells was capable of. As Kayleen and Crystal were sleeping peacefully in Kayleen's bunk beds, Sells crept into the room and began to viciously attack the 13-year-old. Awakened by the violence taking place in the bed below hers, 10-year-old Crystal watched helplessly as her friend was stabbed multiple times. When Sells was finished with Kayleen, he turned his attention to Crystal, slicing the child across the throat. Thinking that both girls were dead, Sells fled the scene. Young Crystal, though critically wounded, managed to escape from the home and make it to a neighbor's house. They immediately called police and the search for the maniac who attacked the girls was set into motion. Kayleen did not survive the horrifying attack, but Crystal did and she remembered everything. With her help, a forensic artist was able to draw a sketch of what the killer looked like. Before long, authorities had their man, one Tommy Lynn Sells. Sells admitted to killing Kayleen and attempting to murder Crystal. He didn't stop there. He confessed to murders all over the country, as well as other unspeakable crimes. He was the devil incarnate for anyone unfortunate enough to encounter him when he was on a crime spree. Still recovering from the injuries that had nearly killed her, Crystal testified against Sells at his murder trial. He was convicted of the murder of Kayleen and the attempted murder of Crystal. He received the ultimate punishment, death by lethal injection. Crystal's nightmare was finally over this boogeyman would never hurt her or anyone else ever again. There are also boogeymen who are the products of the worldwide communication highway, the internet. The most famous or infamous of those has to be Slender Man. 
Slenderman began innocently enough as an internet meme. Not long after his creation, various websites started inviting users to send in their own Slenderman stories. People from all over the world began to make up scary tales about Slenderman. In many of the fictionalized accounts, Slenderman was a nameless, faceless entity who stalked and sometimes murdered unsuspecting victims. He was usually portrayed as very tall and thin with abnormally long limbs. Video games and even film shorts have been developed with Slenderman as their central character. He has become a phenomenon very popular with teens and adults alike. As with anything that becomes as well-known as Slenderman, some people took it too seriously, with dire consequences. In May of 2014, two 12-year-old girls in Wisconsin invited a mutual friend over for a sleepover. The friend had spent time at the home of one of the girls before, and they were good friends. She had no reason to think that this night would be any different. She couldn't have been more wrong. The two girls who had suggested the sleepover had a plan. They were going to isolate the third girl, and then, when the time was right, kill her. They weren't angry with the girl, in fact, they had no problems with her whatsoever. Allegedly, they wanted to kill their friend to prove to Slenderman that they were worthy to be his disciples. The girls had followed the exploits of Slenderman online and believed him to be real. They thought that he lived in the woods somewhere close by. They intended to murder their friend and then find his house so they could reveal to him what they had done. Once the two girls had the third girl alone, one of them is said to have held her down while the other one stabbed her. Thinking they had accomplished their mission, they left the girl's body in the woods and set out looking for Slenderman. A passing bicyclist happened upon the girl who had been so brutally attacked by those she thought were her friends. The girl had been stabbed over a dozen times, but she was still alive and was even able to identify her assailants. The two would-be killers were quickly apprehended. Their alleged victim is still recovering both physically and emotionally from what happened to her that day when her friends turned on her, and all for a boogeyman who existed only in their minds. The boogeyman of the past is a creature from the land of make-believe whose original purpose was to get kids to walk the straight and narrow and mind their elders. That doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of things that go bump in the night to be fearful of, like the cold-blooded killer who unleashed his rage on two young girls one dark Texas night. Boogeymen are all around us. Usually, we don't even realize how close we've come to danger until it has already passed us by. The next time you feel a shiver for no reason or goose flesh suddenly appears on your arms, that might just be something trying to tell you that evil is closer than you think. Up next, the Pemberton Mill disaster, two disasters for the price of one. It's the most wonderful time of the year here at Marlar House. Every year at this time, I ask you to join me in bringing a Christmas miracle to those who are starving around the world. Right now, you can give a financial gift of any size to Food for the Poor by clicking the Give Life banner at WeirdDarkness.com. For each $50 we raise together, it's another child in the Caribbean or Latin America who will be fed for an entire year and will receive clean water for life. So please be as generous as you can. And also, encourage your friends and family to give as well. Share the link to WeirdDarkness.com and ask them to click on the Give Life banner as well so that they can give. And thank you in advance for whatever you can give. If you're already a subscriber and fan of Weird Darkness, 
please post a rating and review in the iTunes Store. Everyone who leaves a review automatically receives the audiobook Fright Before Christmas – 13 Tales of Holiday Horror through the month of November 2017 while supplies last. You can hear a free sample of this audiobook or purchase it for your own collection on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. But if you'd like to receive this audiobook absolutely free, you can post a rating and review of Weird Darkness on iTunes. Simply post your review, then email me a screenshot to let me know you've done so. Posting an iTunes review helps people find the show more easily, helps grow the show, and encourages people to send their stories for future episodes. And a huge thanks to so many who have left reviews over the last week. Amy and Dave in the shop say, Great show! My husband and I found your show about a month ago, and we have been binge-listening every night. We work together in our wood shop after working all day at our regular jobs. Your show makes this time together even more enjoyable. As long as you're creating, we will be listening while we create. Mike Deeb says, Great narration. I love hearing Darren read these stories. I love the music and sound effects behind the story. What a great storyteller. Great podcast. Love it. Nunny Bear says, Best creepy podcast ever. This is by far the most entertaining podcast that I have subscribed to. It has become a weekly tradition for my wife, son, and I to take a drive late on Saturday nights down the back roads of Virginia Beach while listening to the talented Darren Marlar narrate some of the spookiest stories ever told. It's a great show for the whole family. This Doesn't Work At All says, So Good. Darren is an incredible narrator. He's a perfect medium for the horror stories he shares, and unlike most podcasts with a similar premise, he actually knows how to create different characters with voice inflections. Check out Weird Darkness. Jalen07 says, Great voice and spooky tales. I love listening to spooky tales and ghost stories, and Darren's voice expertly transports my imagination to a place of fear and excitement. A-plus podcast. I listen to it every day at work, in my car, getting ready in the morning. Love it. Metabert07 says, My favorite. I love all things paranormal. Weird Darkness is my absolute favorite. I truly will not listen to another podcast. The narrator is my absolute favorite and my favorite narrator ever. I definitely recommend Weird Darkness. RSU the Third says, Love every moment of this podcast. Since discovering this podcast, I can't stop listening. Out of all the paranormal shows out there, this one has what we all need – great narration. Some I just get through for the stories, but Weird Darkness allows me to enjoy all of it. Chili91Willie says, Great podcast. Love the stories in this podcast. The variety is great and the narration is grade A. It's very informative as entertaining. I recently submitted a personal story and hope it makes the podcast. And BJ Anib says, really enjoy the stories and the narration. Fantastic and fun podcast. A huge thanks to all of you for leaving your ratings and reviews of Weird Darkness over the last few days. I greatly appreciate you showing that you truly are official weirdos. So please leave your review if you haven't already done so. Now, let's step back into the Weird Darkness. All too often, we hear about an accident or event somewhere that resulted in almost unimaginable tragedy and loss of life. Yet there are even more stories where an accident occurs but tragedy is averted by the slimmest chance. In those cases, there remains that haunting codicil, what if? What if it happened 15 minutes earlier or 15 minutes later? What if it had been a weekday or what if it had been a weekend? We hear of an elementary school that was struck by a tornado 
just minutes after the last child had left for the day, or a church that was flattened an hour before it would have been full for Sunday services, or the mine explosion on a holiday that kept many miners at home. There is the train that falls into a ravine shortly after most of the passengers have disembarked. How many times have you heard of a natural gas leak causing a house to explode, but no one was home at the time? The disaster that took place at the Pemberton Mill on January 10, 1860 was truly such a tragedy that fits into each of these categories, but with a twist. There occurred a terrible disaster that resulted in an impossibly small loss of life, followed by a second disaster that left a community and a nation stunned. Lawrence, Massachusetts was a city founded to promote the growing textile industry. The land that was to become the site for the new city was purchased in 1845 by a group of Boston industrialists with the intention of bringing in textile mills. The location was perfect for this purpose. It was on the Merrimack River, a great amount of water was required to run the mills. It was just a short train ride from Boston, and it was downriver from Lowell. The city of Lowell had been founded 20 years earlier and was already the largest textile producer in the U.S. The Boston investors were certain that they could capitalize on the growing demand for manufactured textiles and the already established industries in the area. There was another advantage to the location – a huge labor force that was ready, willing, and able. For years, men had been traveling to Europe encouraging immigration to the New England states by guaranteeing employment and housing. As ships arrived in New York and Boston harbors, there were wagons waiting to take the immigrants straight to the textile mills. In some cases, these newcomers to America's shores were on a ship one day and operating a loom the next. Their ranks included men, women, and children. It was a sad fact that children as young as eight years old were employed in the mills. The new city, to be named Lawrence after Congressman Abbott Lawrence, one of the initial investors, would simply tap into the already established pipeline of workers. Unbeknownst to the mill owners, they were about to get a great boom in the labor market. The Great Famine, better known in America as the Irish Potato Famine, was a time of mass starvation and disease in Ireland. Between 1845 and 1852, over a million Irish people died and another million immigrated, mainly to the U.S., where jobs awaited them in the textile mills. The Boston inventors were exactly correct in their plans. Lawrence did indeed become a major player in textiles. The city was incorporated in 1853 and within a few years, several very large mills had been built and work was underway. Several tenements had been built along with the mills since the city was brand new and the factory workers would need housing as soon as they arrived so they could get right to work. It all seemed too good to be true. Business was booming and by 1860, only seven years after it was founded, Lawrence had a population of over 17,000 it had been nicknamed Immigrant City, employing workers from almost every country in Europe and French Canadians as well. The dreams of the Boston investors had come true in ways they probably hadn't dared to imagine, but not so for the immigrants. True, they had received what they had been promised, but it wasn't really what they had expected. Almost anyone who wanted a job could easily get one. The mills needed as many unskilled workers as they did those with specialized training. They worked 65 hours per week, and the vast majority of workers, called operatives, earned about 40 cents a day, for a total of about $2 per week. At those wages, a head of household couldn't possibly earn enough to support his or her family, so entire families had to work in the mills. The single largest group in the textile labor force was women, 
and usually young women. The largest employer in Lawrence was the American Woolen Company. Over half of their operatives were girls between 14 and 18. Many children accompanied their parents and older siblings into the mills, some as young as eight, but most companies shied away from hiring children that young, preferring to wait till they were at least 10. Women and children could do much of the work, and it was expected that they would be paid less than the men. It was a sound business practice for increasing profits. Housing was another one of the promises made to immigrants, when they were being enticed to come and work. This promise, too, was kept, though again, very likely not as the immigrants envisioned. Lawrence operatives and their families lived in overcrowded and dangerous tenement buildings. Frequently, several families had to share a single apartment as wages were low and rent was high. It was the only way they could afford to keep a roof over their heads. Food was expensive, too. The main staples were bread, molasses, and beans. Meat was costly and was usually reserved for holidays. The working and living conditions did not allow for a healthy workforce. The mills were terribly dangerous, especially for the children. It was not unheard of for an operative to be terribly injured, perhaps losing a hand or arm in a loom. The procedure was to escort the injured outside where they would wait in hopes that they did not bleed to death until a friend or family member would find them and take them home. Workplace injuries, along with disease and malnutrition, took a very high toll. A child in Lawrence or one of the other mill towns had only a 50% chance of surviving past the age of six. Life expectancy wasn't much better for the adults. Of those who worked in a textile mill, 36 out of every 100 men and women died before reaching the ripe old age of 25. In 1853, John Lowell and his brother-in-law, J. Pickering Putnam, decided to go into the textile business. They hired an engineer named Charles H. Bigelow to construct a large building that would house the most modern textile equipment available. Their new Pemberton Mill, a cotton-spinning mill, met their expectations and then some. The building was five stories high with a basement and measured 280 feet long and 84 feet wide, giving them roughly 141,000 square feet of workspace. The building and equipment cost a previously unheard of amount of $850,000. Several hundred operatives were hired and Lowell and Putnam were in business. After only four years, Lowell and Putnam lost their nerve during a financial panic in 1857. They sold Pemberton Mill to George Howe and David Nevins Sr. for a substantial loss. The new owners moved in more equipment and hired more operatives to increase the output. The mill operated with great success and earned the owners an average of $1.5 million each year. The building was so packed with machines and workers that it was said to vibrate with energy. Based on what was to come, that vibration was more than likely literal rather than figurative, as over 1,000 people toiled there, running 2,700 spindles and 700 looms. The industrial area where the Pemberton Mill was located had several working textile mills situated side by side along the Merrimack River. There were thousands of operatives going to and from work at the same times each day. The area was terribly congested with buildings and people and buildings filled with people. Looking back, it was a disaster waiting to happen. And so it was. On Tuesday, January 10, 1860, at a few minutes before five in the afternoon, there were many people on hand to witness what was to be the single worst industrial accident in Massachusetts and one of the worst in U.S. history. People outside and inside the Pemberton Mill building were startled when, as described in American Heritage magazine, Suddenly, there was a sharp rattle and then a prolonged, deafening crash. A section of the building's brick wall 
seemed to bulge out and explode, and then, literally in seconds, the Pemberton collapsed. Tons of machinery crashed down through the crumpling floors, dragging trapped, screaming victims along in their downward path. The factory was a heap of twisted iron, splintered beams, pulverized bricks, and agonized, imprisoned human flesh. Workers from neighboring mills could do nothing but watch in horror and disbelief as the entire Pemberton building, all five stories, collapsed before their eyes. The air was rent by screams of the operatives trapped inside the ruins. Where there was once a huge industrial building was now a pile of rubble under a huge plume of dust. Nothing remained except a section of an exterior rear wall. Everything else was gone, reduced to a massive pile of rubble. Cries for help filled the air as workers in nearby mills rushed to the scene. Somewhere between 800 and 900 people had been in the building when it collapsed. To the utter amazement of the witnesses, living, breathing people began crawling out of the rubble. A few hundred people were either unhurt or had only minor injuries and were able to pull themselves from the wreckage. With a catastrophic event that should have meant certain death for almost everyone in the building, there were survivors, many survivors. In fact, other than a few dozen who had died instantly, almost everyone in the building survived the collapse, even after falling several stories as the floors fell from beneath their feet. Iron columns had crumbled, massive beams had been splintered, and many tons of brick and mortar lay in heaps, but somehow many, many people were still alive. Witnesses believed it was nothing short of a miracle. As the dust began to settle, more than 600 workers were still held captive in the tangled, twisted ruins. Some were merely trapped. Some had minor or at least survivable wounds, and still others were still breathing but had sustained substantial injuries. George Howe, one of the owners, had escaped as the structure was falling. His partner David Nevins was away from the building when it fell. Apparently, the large and heavy machinery inside the building that had helped cause the collapse also helped protect the workers inside. Those who were able to avoid being crushed by the falling machines were, in turn, protected by them as they created safe pockets of space while holding up the timbers and other debris. In some cases, as many as 25 people survived by huddling in the same protected space. One woman who was standing near a window along the wall that remained standing became so frightened that she threw her bonnet and shawl out the window and then jumped out herself. She soon died from injuries sustained from her dramatic leap. While many people were able to free themselves from the wreckage, it took Herculean efforts to free others. Workers from nearby mills and the surrounding community ran to the aid of the victims. Every able-bodied person pitched in, working at a breakneck pace to free trapped people as quickly as they could. Friends and family members arrived on the scene and began a frantic search for their loved ones. A general alarm had gone out to the Lawrence Fire Department and to those in the surrounding towns. When the firefighters arrived, they climbed down and went to work with the rescue effort. There were many tales of daring escapes, remarkable rescues, and unbelievable recoveries. A group of men heard a young girl screaming and crying for help. She was found covered by at least 10 feet of rubble and debris. After working to remove the twisted mass from on top of her, the rescuers were shocked when the girl jumped up, unhurt and smiling, thanked them for freeing her, and ran off to find her family. In another part of the ruins, a family of five was released from their tomb unharmed when a large section of floor was lifted from above them. They climbed from the hole, the terrified mother scooped her children to her, and praising their rescuers cried out a prayer of thanks. Another miraculous escape was that of Selena Weeks. Miss Weeks had been working in the fifth-floor spool room and dropped with it when the building fell. As she regained her senses, she realized that she was still standing on the spool room floor, but was waist-deep in debris. She was able to dig her way out and made her way home unharmed. 
At the same time that Miss Weeks fell from the top floor, Damon Wyham was working in the basement. He found himself completely buried under a dozen feet of debris. After repeated tries, he was able to tunnel his way to an area where rescuers could reach him and he was pulled to safety. A small boy who was working on one of the upper floors realized what was happening when he heard the crashes. He jumped into a trash can and rode down with the floor, becoming buried under several feet of wreckage. When rescuers lifted the material from what contemporary reports described as his safety capsule, he jumped out and walked away as if nothing had happened. Three young sisters with the appropriate surname of Luck all survived. Jane Luck was buried for nearly five hours but was released unharmed. Her sister Anna Luck heard the crashing as the building collapsed and dove under her loom. She called to her other sister and friend to do the same. All three of the girls survived. Not all of the Luck family was as lucky. The girl's two uncles, who were working in the mill, were killed. Thomas Watson was on the fifth floor when it fell. His jaw was broken in three places and he sustained three broken ribs and several deep cuts. Despite his injuries, he climbed out from the rubble unaided. He noticed to his surprise that he had not felt any pain until he was walking about free. His wife also worked at the mill but that day she had stayed home for the first time since she had started work six months before. It so happened that Watson was to leave on a trip the next day and she had stayed home to prepare his traveling clothes and pack his things. A child was found pinned under a large iron pillar by a rescue team lying next to a woman. The following is a contemporary description of the dramatic events that followed. On Tuesday evening, while 2,000 men were exerting every energy in rescuing the survivors from their living sepulchers and the dead from the rubbish which buried them, a party came upon the body of a little girl. She lay apparently crushed beneath a ponderous block of iron weighing over a thousand pounds and which covered her body to the chin. Her back was pressed against a huge timber. One of her arms was thrust to the elbow through a ring in a piece of machinery and she was completely wedged in by heavy iron gearing. Intent only on preserving her features and form as little disfigured as possible, the men labored carefully to remove the block of iron without crushing her still further. Four of them tugged upon it and succeeded in loosening it. The other rubbish was then removed and the body taken out when, what was the surprise and joy of the men to find that they had rescued a living girl instead of a corpse, and more, that her injuries were not fatal but comparatively trifling. The heavy iron had met with some more powerful obstruction than her body, and her life was spared as if by a miracle. The body of the woman lying next to her was extricated from the ruins by her friends and relatives. The bricks and iron had buried her so tightly that there were no hopes of her survival. When her body was at last drawn out, the circle of friends found their worst fears confirmed. Her husband took her carefully in his arms and bore her toward his home. A number of relatives were there waiting. Suddenly, the woman revived and, throwing up her hand, cried out, I'm safe, I'm safe. She was received as one risen from the dead. Henry Niece was both victim and hero. He was working in the boiler room when the building fell. As rubble began to fall on him, he rushed for the door and fell out onto the porch where debris piled onto him. After being nearly suffocated by a cloud of steam and dust, he was able to burrow through to safety, but instead of leaving, he began a search of the area. He found a young girl whose arms and legs were injured, pinned to the floor by a beam across her neck. He found a saw and cut her free, passing her off to a rescue team as he continued to search for survivors. Then he located a friend of his, lying over a young woman who was pinned under a mass of wreckage. The woman urged Nice to free the man first, as she was not as badly injured. After the man was removed, a team worked feverishly trying to remove a heavy piece of machinery from over her, but they were unable to free her. They planned to come back later with tools, but after the second disaster of the night befell them, 
she was killed where she lay. In another area, a man named Adams was trapped in the basement by several heavy beams. Because of the precarious position of the beams relative to where he was trapped, rescuers were unable to reach him, but instead passed him an axe and a saw. With these tools, he was able to cut and chop his way to freedom. Dramatic rescue efforts continued throughout the site, with person after person being pulled from the wreckage. The Lawrence City Hall had been prepared for double duty as a makeshift morgue and as a hospital. As the dead were removed, they were carefully carried to the dead room. When the injured were removed, they were taken to the hospital room in the same building. It was a cold January day, but the rescuers stayed warm with exertion. Soon it began to grow dark and colder. Large bonfires were built in a circle around the collapsed building to provide light for the rescuers as they continued their search into the darkness. At about 9.30 that night, after four and a half hours and hundreds of people freed from the wreckage, someone either kicked over or dropped an oil lamp. The burning fluid quickly spread to a pile of debris. The flames shot across the splintered wood and wads of cotton, some soaked with oil, and quickly ignited the ruins of the building where many trapped but living people were waiting to be released. The second disaster of the day had begun. In one area, a man who saw the flames coming toward him cut his throat rather than be burned to death. He was rescued before the fire reached him, but he soon died of his injuries. In another section, very near to where the fire started, rescuers had nearly succeeded in freeing a woman where the fire swept through. She had survived the collapse, only to be consumed by the fire. As the fire spread, rescue volunteers, firemen, friends, and family were forced back by the extreme heat. Fire crews poured a steady stream of water on the burning section, seeking to halt the spread of flames while rescues continued on the other side. But it was a losing battle. The fire soon spread across the entire ruin, and the terrified screams of those still trapped inside were quickly silenced, with only the sounds of the fire remaining. Fourteen people were known to have burned to death in the sight of their friends and families. The fire burned long and hot, raging through the night and into the next day, Wednesday, January 11th. There was little that anyone could do but stand back and watch. Anyone who had been left alive after the collapse was now dead, ravaged by fire. By evening, the fire had mostly burned itself out, but too much heat was radiating from the wreckage for anyone to approach. During the day on Wednesday, a crowd had begun to form. Flocks of people from other towns and cities, including Boston, began arriving by train. They filled every available inch of space they could find, filling the streets and lining the bridge over the Merrimack. They had come to see the wreckage of the once thriving factory. They wanted to be a part of history, to be able to say that they had been there to see what was left after the great building had collapsed. As the day drew on, a light rain had begun to fall later turning to snow. The Pemberton Mill Company took over the ruins. From here on, company men would be directing the efforts as rescue had become recovery. By 10 o'clock Thursday morning, January 12, the fire was almost completely out, but smoke continued to bellow up from deep inside the rubble. The firefighters continued to pour streams of water where they saw smoke. It was still too hot to enter the wreckage, so recovery efforts had to be put off another day. The smoke and cold didn't seem to deter the crowds of the morbidly curious. They would have to wait another day to see flesh and bone released from the ashes. As snow continued to fall, it drifted down through the burned-out beams and machinery, falling gently onto the upraised faces of charred corpses who patiently waited to be released from their tomb and taken to their families. 
On Friday morning, January 13, the pit had cooled enough for the recovery efforts to continue. Derricks were set up around the ruin to help lift and remove heavy machinery and debris. Victims were once again being removed, but this time none were among the living. The recovery was now more dangerous, but the 100 men working there were determined that no one would be left in that miserable pit. The crowd continued to look on, but a few of the men left the safety of the road and stepped inside the perimeter, adding themselves to the recovery operation. At one point, as groups of two and three worked their way through the wreckage, a man remembered where he had seen a young woman named Kate Cooney partially buried. She had been struck by a beam and her legs were pinned under her so she couldn't move. It had been just before the fire found her that he had heard her cries for help. The men dug in the area the man indicated and they soon came upon her body. She had been badly burned about her head and neck and her arms had been burned off up to her elbows, but her lower body was relatively untouched. Her skirt and apron were not even scorched. Thirteen more bodies were pulled out on Saturday the 14th. As before, some were only partially burned, some were completely charred, and others were found with only portions of limbs remaining to indicate that a human body had once lain in that spot. As darkness approached, the men stopped working as they did not want to further mutilate by accident any bodies they might find in the darkness. They made every effort to get everybody identified and returned to the people who loved them. On Sunday the 15th, over 150 men arrived for work at sunrise and the search continued. They did not wish to cause any more grief than was absolutely necessary for the families that were still waiting for someone to be pulled out of the rubble. They chose to work through their one day of rest. On January 20, 10 days after the building had collapsed, the last bodies were recovered from the debris. These bodies were completely unrecognizable. They were taken to the dead room at the city hall even though no one there would be able to claim them. In the end, 13 bodies had been charred and mutilated beyond any possibility of identification. A little more than two months after the disaster, the city purchased a plot in Lawrence's Bellevue Cemetery, and on Sunday, March 4, 1869, funeral services were held and the remains of the unknown workers were laid to rest. Later, a monument was placed at the head of the plot in memory of all who lost their lives in Pemberton Mill. The crowds remained at the disaster site for many days after the last body had been removed. It was as if they just couldn't move on. Soon, people began to wander onto the site and started sifting through the debris, searching for relics or mementos of the disaster. A man from St. Louis collected a large bundle of grisly souvenirs that included burned clothing from some of the victims. Two New Yorkers collected pieces of broken bricks and splinters of burned beams. The ferocity with which the relic seekers went about their business was becoming a hazard to the cleanup crews and the intruders alike. Eventually, realizing it had to stop, the mayor and the company gave orders for it to stop and hired men to guard the ruins. Eventually, the crowds dispersed and went home. Calls went out across the country for financial assistance. The New England Society of Manufacturers collected a total of $19,000 and handed it over to Mayor Daniel Saunders. Boston clubs and societies brought in another $9,000. Churches, schools, and fraternal organizations collected donations from around the country, raising the total of $65,579.29. Mayor Saunders put together a committee to determine how best to use the money to assist the victims. Hearings were held to investigate the cause of the collapse and to determine fault. After several days of testimony, the blame was laid at the door of engineer Charles Bigelow. The primary problems with the building lay in faulty or otherwise substandard materials. The iron pillars that had been put in place to support the heavy machinery were found to be brittle and badly cast. In a moment of stress, they had crumbled. 
it was also determined that the mortar used with the bricks was extremely poor and was completely ineffective at holding the brick joints together. The committee felt that the use of appropriate materials and construction systems should have been Bigelow's responsibility and that his design must somehow be at fault as well. The committee failed to take into account that most of the other mill buildings in Lawrence had also been designed and built by Bigelow. They also ignored the fact that the mill's second owners had severely overloaded the structure, well beyond its design limits. No blame was assigned to the owners, since they obviously had purchased a faulty building without knowledge of its shortcomings. Some of the final statistics were startling. Women and girls made up 62% of the mill's workforce, but they made up 73% of the dead and missing and 67% of the injured, leaving questions of how these proportions became so out of balance. After the dead and the living had been counted, and counted again, it was believed that of the 1,003 employees at the Pemberton Mill, between 99 and 145 people lost their lives in the disaster. The best estimate as to those injured is 302. All of these numbers are horrifying and unfortunate, but the most remarkable thing of all is that while a five-story building suffered a catastrophic collapse into rubble in a matter of seconds, nearly 600 people either climbed out or were pulled free of the wreckage without injury and were able to walk home on their own. After all the bodies had been recovered, the company called in those who were unemployed as a result of the disaster and hired them to work on the cleanup crews. When all the wreckage had been removed, the owners rebuilt a new mill on the old foundation and reopened for business. For a long time after the second Pemberton Mill was opened, workers reported seeing people they didn't recognize walking through a room or down an aisle. The employee might turn a corner and catch a glimpse of a mysterious person wearing old-fashioned clothes who suddenly vanished. It didn't take long for the living workers to suspect that they were sharing their workspace with people who were long since dead. Over time, fewer and fewer people spoke about seeing these spectral workers in the mill. It is impossible to determine if they were appearing less frequently or if the living had grown so accustomed to their ethereal comrades that they no longer noticed when they were around. The mill has long been closed down but the building still stands on the bank of the Merrimack River. There is talk of turning it into loft-style condominiums or possibly a shopping center. It will be interesting to see if any of the future occupants of the old Pemberton Mill building turn a corner one day and come face-to-face -face with a woman in a floor-length skirt and long apron looking for her machine in order to spin cotton into yet another century. This episode is sponsored by Horror Pack. If you're a true fan of horror, you'll love Horror Pack as they send you four terrifying movies on Blu-ray or DVD each month. Every month, you'll receive a mystery box delivered right to your door. Inside, you'll find four brand new movies carefully selected by horror film lovers like you. Subscribe today by clicking the Horror Pack banner at WeirdDarkness.com. For those of you who have been asking for it, the gear is here. Click the Store tab at WeirdDarkness.com and you'll find Weird Darkness t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, coffee mugs, phone cases, and more. If you're an official weirdo, take a look inside the Store tab at WeirdDarkness.com and you might find something to die for. While you are at WeirdDarkness.com, please also click on the Give Life banner and give whatever you can towards our annual holiday tradition of feeding the poor. Every $50 we raise is another child who is fed for an entire year. So please give now and give generously by clicking the Give Life banner at WeirdDarkness.com. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. Again, if you like the show, please post a rating and review on iTunes. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true. 
the Drury Lane Theatre is from the book 100 True Ghost Stories, Terrifying Hauntings from the UK and Around the World, written by Alan Toner. The Real Boogeyman is from the book Could It Be True? Volume 1 Urban Legends by Cindy Parmeter. The Horror at Pemberton Mill is from the book A Pale Horse Was Death by Troy Taylor and Renee Cruz. You can find links to all of these books in the show's description. Music in this episode is provided by Shadows Symphony. You can find them online at facebook.com slash shadows symphony. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Comcast Business gives you the bandwidth you need to power all your devices. Get started with 200 megabit internet and voice for $99.99 per month. And for a limited time, we'll upgrade your speed to 300 megabits for no additional cost for the first year with a three-year agreement. Call 1-800-501-6000 today. Comcast Business. Beyond fast. Offer 3120 restrictions apply not available in all areas. New business customers only limited to Comcast Business Internet, 200 megabits per second and one voice mobility line. Regular rates apply after first 12 months. Three-year agreement required. Early termination fee applies. Equipment taxes and fees extra subject to change. Monthly service charge increases by $10 without paperless billing and auto pay.